<laughs> All right, welcome. How's everyone doing? Woo! Well, I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. This is Resonate. My name is Josh. Uh, I'm the pastor here. That's Omid. He's the worship leader here. Uh, that was Harrison. He leads worship here as well. Um, and I'm just, I'm so thrilled that you're here. I'm so thrilled we get to talk about what we're going to be talking about. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention before I get into this is on Easter, uh, along with the stuff that we're doing with Harvest Home, like the Easter baskets and the worship night, we're like really going to start partnering with them, which is super awesome. Um, what they do is they take uh, like single moms uh, that are in a hard, rough spot and give them a chance to sort of like live again, get some breathing room, uh, get them in contact with jobs. Uh, they live in the space and they're actually taken care of there. And it's a, like a bunch of churches and individual donors that kind of funds that and helps them along. And we're partnering with them in the way that like a small church can. And just basically like we, we met with the leader and we were like, hey, literally anything you need, throw it our way. So like down to like, like, can I call you for like moving things in a truck? And I was like, absolutely, like call me for anything. So uh, part of that was the Easter baskets. But along with the Easter baskets, and this is really cool, uh, there's about, there'll be about 10 women living there uh, when Easter rolls around. There's about three living there now. Uh, and the 10 women, we're going to invite them uh, to come to church on Easter. And Sarah, who's the leader of Harvest Home, has actually already done that. So the other thing that we're in uh, real need of is if anybody would like to um, offer up transportation for that, uh, let me know. You can email me at josh at resonate.church uh, to do that. But we'll need some cars to get them uh, they right off Abbot Kinney in the Venice area from there to here on Easter morning. So let me know if that's something that you're interested in doing. Um, we're going to talk about uh, the Bible this morning, fun stuff. We're going to talk about uh, John. Uh, we're going to be leading a huge chunk of scripture, and we're going to talk about women and wells. Cool? Are you with me? Let's, uh, let's pray before we get in. Lord, I am so grateful uh, for this morning. I'm so thankful that you have created a community like this, that uh, we can come here uh, to talk about the stuff that really matters most. And as we talked about last week, uh, just that idea that this is a space for everyone, and everyone is welcome, and everyone is embraced. Uh, we're going to continue in that, Lord, and I just pray that that uh, would be our heart as we, as we walk through the next couple weeks, and especially coming into Easter. Amen. Um, so let's talk a little bit about this book. This is not a book. This is an iPad, but it has my Bible in it. Uh, you can get a Bible on your phone for free now. It's really awesome. Um, but this, this Bible thing is sort of like a library when we first look at it. It looks like a book. But it's actually a collection of poems and stories and narratives and, and really like this huge, dense uh, thing. You can, you can like scrutinize over one line in the Bible or you can look at it as an overarching narrative. So I could spend like right now uh, 30 minutes talking about John 3.16, one single verse, or I could spend 30 minutes talking about Genesis to Revelation. So it's this huge like unfolding story uh, and people have been studying it for 2,000 years and we still don't have it all figured out, right? So that really like kind of... That, that validates what we're doing here, being a church that doesn't have it all figured out, because if we claim to, like, you know, that's 2,000 years of people much smarter than I studying this thing, and they haven't gotten it yet. Uh, so if we get into, like, the deep cuts, though, like, we get Genesis, there's lots of the, we went actually through, like, a lot of the good, like, fun stories of the Bible. You got your David and Goliath, you got your Noah, you got your Jonah, and there's a fun whale that spits him out, and all this, like, cool stuff. But there's also, like, these books where you're, like, if you tried to read it from cover to cover, like Deuteronomy or Leviticus, you'd be going, What? is going on. There are passages in there about what to do when you have 10 wives, not really applicable to us. There are passages in there uh, about what to do when your neighbor steals your goat. Like, again, not really like applicable to us. So that's why we need to apply context. And that's kind of the fun thing that we get to do in spaces like this. We get to give context to the original meaning of this scripture, why it was important back then, and why it's still important today. So the major goal for me this morning 
is to convince you guys, well, maybe not convince, but I will tell you guys <laughs> that this is a progressive text. And it was pushing boundaries way back then, and it's still pushing boundaries today. And we have to treat it like that. Uh, and so to do that, we're going to look at the book of John. So we're going from big Bible to one single book, and that's the book of John. So uh, John would have been written uh, in this city called Ephesus and uh, in the years 98 to 105 CE. I had to look that one up. That was not memorized. <laughs> 98 to 105 CE. And the time and the city are important. So Ephesus would have looked a lot like, uh, like, like Los Angeles, in all honesty. It was this really cool sort of enlightened city that didn't have any history of religious persecution, and the people there were well-traveled, and they were mostly from out of town. Sound familiar? Like Los Angeles, most people don't actually live here. Come here on Christmas, no one's here. Uh, so Ephesus is the city with this really diverse and well-educated population, right? And even more than that, that religious persecution aspect isn't there. So for the first time in Christian history, the church has some wiggle room. It has some time to breathe. It has some time to get its groove. And so this is when the Gospel of John is written. It's the last gospel to be written. And the other cool thing to think about in all this is Paul, the guy who uh, like wrote most of the New Testament, all the letters that we have, uh, all of those letters were actually written before this gospel. So this gospel is informed by the letters of Paul and by this city. And that's really, really cool. We're going to talk a lot about context this morning, but the fact that it's written within that context is, is super important. Uh, so let's talk about Paul for a minute. Paul is this guy that wrote most of the New Testament, and he was also in Ephesus, and he would have gotten there before John. So he, about 50 years uh, before John gets on the scene, Paul is floating around, and he starts this church in Ephesus. And he does this in this really unique way. And it's a lot about like, what we did at Resonate, where we went out and we went to go listen to the community and see what people really wanted in church, not what we wanted them to want. He went to the original temple there for the, with the pagan gods, and he looked around, and there would have been all of these like, idols around this temple. And he comes into that context, and he says, okay, yeah, like, so I see that like, this God, it, like, goodness is really inherent in this God. It, that's like Jesus. Like, let me show you like, a little bit about Jesus. And then he's also like this idol over here, so let me tell you a little bit more about Jesus. Like, oh, and he's also like this idol, and he's also like this idol, and he's also like this idol. But what I want you to pay attention to is the way that he doesn't roll in the temple and just go like, all you guys are wrong. This is actually what's right, so listen up. Right? He gives it context, and he respects the traditions of the Ephesians. Uh, and so as we look... In John, at this passage, the story of the woman at the well, we need to kind of come at it from the context of John is writing, uh, like, respecting people, number one. John's writing as a poet, number two. John also wrote a little book called Revelation, and that is a doozy. <laughs> uh, and if we don't look at that like poetry, we're in real trouble. Um, so John wrote this, and he wrote Revelation, and he did that poetically. So we need to look at it through the context of there's this diverse, well-educated city that he's writing for, and there's this poetic narrative language. See, John was an apostle, and he walked around with Jesus. He would have seen what Jesus did. And Jesus' like, like whole deal was parable, right? These stories, these kind of confusing stories where you're like, what? Like, what is he talking about? And you have to unpack that over time. And the, the least crazy thing about Jesus were those weird stories. His miracles and his encounters with people were actually much stranger than that, right? Like raising people from the dead, healing crippled people. Like this is, this is insane stuff. So his whole life is either telling a parable or kind of living a parable. And that's the way that John sort of writes this text. So let's view all of that as we dive into the scripture. And this is going to be um, a little lengthy. We'll, we'll read one part of it, we'll pause, and then we'll read a huge chunk. Uh, so bear with me. Here we go. 
This is uh, John 4, 1, 3. It says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not John who, who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So let's pause here. Even before we get to the story of the woman of the world, there's like a lot to unpack. So on the surface, this seems like an easy setup. However, there's some crazy boundaries being crossed already. So one, Jesus is leaving Judea uh, to go to Galilee. So Judea would have been, if this is like, if this is the country, right, this wall, Judea would have been like down here, and then Galilee would have been like way up here. And in the middle, there's this convenient or very inconvenient for Jewish people, middle section called Samaria, where the Samaritans would have lived. So uh, to be a good Jewish person, and even more than that, to be a good rabbi, which Jesus would have been, the, the common practice was not to go in a straight line, straight up to the top of the kingdom. The, the, the common practice was actually to walk miles and miles out of the way around, because that's how much they hated the people that were in Samaria. Samaria, they were considered like second-class hicks in the eyes of the Jewish people. Right? And what's ironic is that they're actually very closely related. The Samaritans would have been just as Jewish as the Jewish people at that time, but because of politics and because of religion and because of practices, they were separated so fiercely that it's an insult to be called a Samaritan to a Jewish person. When the, when the uh, Pharisees insulted Jesus, they told him two things. One, you're a Samaritan, and two, you're possessed by a demon. <laughs> They're on the same level. And the interesting thing is when Jesus rebuttals that, he, uh, he says, I'm not possessed by a demon, but he never talks about the Samaritan line, um, which I think is very interesting for our story today. So right there, smack dab in the middle. So they would have had to travel all the way around the kingdom to get there. That's how much they hated these people. And I really want to stress that. Like, we don't really have many modern examples that kind of pull into on that, but like, it would be like in Northern Ireland, the Protestants and the Catholics, or it would be like even in our own city, sort of the Los Angeles street gangs, we have that tension. There's, there's, there's tension over territory. There's tension over tradition. There's tension over religion and race. And this was all wound up in this version of Samaria uh, and the Jewish people. So we know Jesus isn't about things like racism and hate. So he decides, I'm going straight through. And partly that was because of the urgency of his ministry. Like he knew, I only got this much time. I'm going straight through there. And that was also partly because he's sending a political message to the Pharisees who were kind of keeping score on him. That's why he leaves. They're, they're saying, well, John, this other guy is doing this radical thing by a river, is baptizing this many people, but Jesus has got this many people. Jesus is in the lead, and he's like, guys, this is not a competition. I'm getting as far from you as I possibly can, and to do that, I'm going to go straight through the place that you're not going to allow me to go through. Right? So he goes through uh, Samaria, and more importantly than all of that, this is because he's about to reveal so much about his love for all people. So let's hop back into the story in the scripture, and this is where it's going to get a little lengthy. So uh, imagine with me, if you will. Okay, this starts at verse 4. It says, Now he had gone through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And we talked about Jacob as we went through the story series, but Jacob was one of the patriarchs of the Jewish religion and of the Samaritan. So, uh, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Hold on to that. It was about noon line. A Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me some water to drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy him some food. The Samaritan woman asked, why do you, a Jewish man, ask for something to drink from me, a Samaritan woman? 
Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with each other. So that's even in the text, right? But also, there's so much much going on here because she's also a woman. And in that tradition, a Jewish man really wouldn't even address a woman in private. So we're dealing with a public display at the main hub, the well, right? He's talking to her, and she's shocked by this. And Jesus responded, if you recognize God's gift and who is saying to you, give me some water to drink, you would be asking him, and he would give you the living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you don't have a bucket, and the well is deep. Where would you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave, a, he gave this well to us, and he drank from himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become, in those who drink it, a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life. That kind of sounds painful. Uh, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty and will never need to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go get your husband and come back here. This is where things get a little tense. The woman replied, I don't have a husband. And he said, You are right to say, I don't have a husband. Jesus answered, You've had five husbands, and the man you're with now isn't your husband. You've spoken the truth. And the woman said, Sir, I see that you're a prophet. Sort of taking it back. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you and your people say that it's necessary to to worship in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the time is coming when you and your people will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You and your people worship what you don't know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But the time is coming and is here. There's that it's coming and it's here language again. When true worshipers and will worship in spirit and in truth, the Father looks for those who worship him this way. God is spirit and it's necessary to worship God in spirit and in truth. Whew, I need a nap. Uh, so again, if John is an apostle, he would have lived this story, right? He would have been one of the people that would have gone off and gotten Jesus' food. And so to tell this story, this really powerful, powerful story, I mean, I know it sounds kind of trite in our day and age, like there's this conversation between Jesus and this woman at the well, but he's now crossed over a geographical barrier, he's crossed over a racial barrier, and he's crossed over a gender barrier. This is a huge, huge move. And there's some serious poetic goodness in here, so let's, let's unpack that. We need, when we, whenever we read scripture, we kind of have to look for the details. Whenever I approach a text, especially one as big and chunky as this, I kind of look for like the concrete things that either stick out uh, because they're really beautiful, or maybe they stick out because they're just straight up weird. Um, and the first thing that kind of sticks out in this passage, and it gets a lot of airplay, is the whole husband's thing, right? Because that's like kind of the most tense moment where Jesus just sort of lays in to this woman who's living with another man, and she's been married five times, and in that culture, that just would have been like, what? Like, outrageous. So that's the sermon that you usually hear preached, but that's the sermon that completely misses the point. This is not Jesus trying to tear into someone. This is Jesus trying to point out someone's hurt and say, I see you, I know you, and I love you, and I want to take you from here to here. So let's try and find some different details in this text and kind of disarm that like scathingness to it. So we'll ask a series of why questions that'll kind of build us this morning, okay? Uh, it's four why questions. Do we have those on the screen there? No? Perhaps not. Okay, one, why does John tell us what time it is? Two, why is there a well? Three, why is there an unnamed woman? And four, and this will be the thing that brings us home, why is she hurting? 
So why does Jesus, or why does John tell us what time it is? There is no other instance in Scripture, I'm serious, no other instance in Scripture where they name the time of day. We don't find out when Jesus turned water into wine, although like 11 a.m. would have been a really shocking discovery. <laughs> we have no idea the time frame. We get to know that it's the Sabbath, or we get to know that it's a certain meal, so we can kind of get it through context, but they never say like at, at 3 p.m. Jesus did this, or at 4 p.m. So why in this passage do they tell us that it's around noon? Uh, Why is that important? Well, it's important because that's the time of day that women in the village were allowed to go draw water from the well. So this was the time that only women would have been present at the well. This is where they draw the the water that they'll use for dinner and the next day. And this is the only time they're sort of permitted to come out and do that work, right, at the well. It was like regimented. Uh, So Jesus is just hanging at that well. And then that got me thinking, why do they keep harping on this well? Like, well, because there's like the water metaphor, and that's really good. Like, Jesus uses that like crazy. But also, like, they could have been near a spring. They could have been near like an ocean. They could have been near like anything. Why a well, right? And so as I looked and studied, it turns out that the well is this this, uh, typical scene in the Bible. And whenever there's a well, this is true, whenever there's a well, there's an expectation of marriage, Right? So we actually meet several important women at every instance that a well is mentioned in the Bible. Uh, I'm going to read this because I cannot remember all their names. Um, a servant was sent to find Rebecca for Isaac and found her at a well. Jacob, uh, whose well Jesus is casually slouching on, found Rachel at a well. And Moses found his wife Zipporah by rescuing her from bad people at a well. So before we go down the road uh, of thinking that Jesus is about to propose to this woman at the well, um, that's not what it's about. The interesting flip about these stories at the well, and it would have been even more obvious to an ancient reader, is that these were kind of progressive and pushing the envelope sort of texts. Like, the story of Moses and Zipporah at that well is not about Moses. The story of Isaac and Rebecca, it's, not about, it's never about the guy at the well. It's always about the woman. We are introduced to these women at the well. They are introduced to us, and they are named at the well. They are introduced to us, and they are named at the well. And so that brings us uh, to number three. If, if every story is about an introduction of a woman or a powerful female character in the Bible at a well, and they are named and we are introduced to them, then why this time do we have an unnamed woman? Why is there an unnamed woman? And here is where uh, the helpful tool of poetry needs to be applied. Names are a really big deal in the Bible, especially in Genesis. So in the opening narrative of the Bible, your name likely meant what you were going to accomplish, right? That your name became your identity. It was sort of like this like, little prologue that if we knew, like, oh, Moses, that he's going to rescue someone, right? Like that, that we knew because that's what the name meant. And the fact that this woman is not named, if we view this poetically, we can look and see that maybe this woman isn't named and she's only called woman by Jesus because she is a representative of a group that was so looked down upon at that time. When the woman comes to Jesus at the well, we're viewing not just one woman, but all women. And in this society, this is like crazy, bold stuff. Some of you have probably seen uh, this video floating around, and I really wish that we had the time to like, show it because it's really brilliant. Uh, but if you have time this week, it's uh, with a woman named Megan Phelps Roper. And she uh, was involved in the Westboro uh, Baptist Church. Do you guys know what the Westboro Baptist Church is? It's this really uh, intense and sort of hateful church that will picket funerals, and, and it's kinda, it gets kind of crazy. 
Uh, and she grew up in this church. She was actually born in this church. And she tells her story of, of being born into that and living in that context and then eventually deciding to leave because she changed her mind. And she sort of tells the process of how her mind uh, shifts. And a lot of that uh, is through conversations that she had with other people. So she said that she would go on Twitter and she would tweet out something like really intense, like really, <laughs> really intense stuff I can't say in church, right? But they're a church, which is interesting. So she would tweet out this like crazy hate speech and then she would get a bunch of replies and a lot of them would just be yelling right back at her, right? And she said, that never did anything to me. I expected people to yell. It was the people that kind of tried to start a conversation with me calmly that eventually led me to actually talking with those people. And as I talked with those people, they began to point out things that I thought were concrete and real. And I found out that that's not really true, that this Bible was this bigger thing, that this faith was this bigger thing. And there's more to life than the way that I've been living. But what that took was conversations with people that I was never supposed to talk to in the first place. What it took was conversation with the people that my parents warned me against. Like, don't talk to them. They're sinners. They're evil. You have it right, and you need to just tell them that you have it right. Right? So she, she came up with this list of musts that, that, we, uh, that we should have when we're having these conversations with people. And it says, don't assume bad intent. So don't assume that the person that you're talking to is ill will towards you. Ask questions more than you speak. Like ask questions and listen. Stay calm. That's huge. And make the argument. So make your case. Here's the thing that Jesus did with that woman at the well and that these people on Twitter did with Megan. They were brave enough to have a conversation with someone on the other side of the fence that did not look like them. And they decided to treat that person as an equal how much of our lives are spent avoiding conversations and relationships like that? The key sign for me that we spend a whole lot of time avoiding these conversations is that a mega, ultra-huge company like Facebook would, would build an unfollow button, <laughs> right? So you can sort of mute your crazy racist aunt, but you, you don't have to unfollow all the way. You could just kind of like, I won't see her anymore, <laughs> right? And we laugh and it's hilarious, but like, at the same time, like, that's the kind of like, passive-aggressive attitude that we often walk through life like. I just don't want to deal with that person. I don't want to deal with that conversation. You know what? They, they are living this way, and they're running with this crowd, and as a result, I just want nothing to do with them. I'm going to eject myself from their life. I'm not going to hang out with them, and that's so damaging. If you think about the political climate we're in right now, a lot of that has to do with because we've just like escaped into our own little echo chambers. We're not having the calm, necessary conversations with people on the other side of the fence who don't look like us, who don't believe in us. And if we don't have those calm conversations, we're just going to become more and more divided. What Jesus does in this instance is he comes and he talks to this woman as an equal, and he, he, he looks at her and says, I know where you're hurting the most in this husband area, so I know you, trust me. And then he outlines what this living water looks like. Think of that metaphor between the well and living water, a spring that's bubbling up forth. Like a well is just like a stagnant hole in the ground that holds the water that gives life. But a, a spring, this running water, this fresh, this new living thing that's gonna bubble up inside of you, that means that you don't have to keep coming back to this well 
this old tradition with all the rules and the law and everything, that's only going to satisfy your thirst for so long. This new thing is going to take you into things that you would never believe were possible. This was brand new thinking. And the biggest and boldest thing that Jesus does is he uses this woman, considered the other, in a foreign land he's not even supposed to be in and uses that person as his main advocate. Once she locks into this, she goes out into the town and she starts telling everybody, you have got to see this guy. He called me out on my five husbands. <laughs> no, like, you've got to meet this guy. He's got this living water thing and this, you're never going to believe. This is the Messiah. This is the son of God. And I have encountered him at this well and I'm going to bring you back. And it says that a lot of the Samaritans believe. Can you imagine the cultural divide that they're stepping through in that moment? They're not just saying like, Oh, well, okay, yeah, living water, in. No, they're stepping out of their cultural bounds and saying this Jewish person has something for us that's bigger. But so often we just talk about the five husbands part and the way that Jesus scathes at people and the way that he's like, he calls you and he says, you need to be living better. And that's not what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I know how you're hurting and I don't want you to hurt that way anymore. I want you to have this living water. I want you to live. So let's disarm this, this passage a little bit, and that brings us to our last why question, which is why is she hurting? And we'll, let's read that passage again. She said, Jesus said to her, go get your husband and come back here. The woman replied, I don't have a husband. You were right to say I don't have a husband, Jesus answered. You've had five husbands, five, and the man you are with now isn't your husband. You've spoken truth. Now, like on first reading, like even I'm like, my goodness, the mood is tense. Can you imagine this, this guy that you just met who's crossing some already uncomfortable boundaries talking with you and he just called you out about something that you hadn't even told him? But the intent was not to put her down. The passage gets abused too often because people don't do the hard work of contextualization. And for some good reason, like, or for no good reason, some Christians really love a blood sport, right? We love, like, calling people out in love is such a Christian thing. And, like, but if we're not careful, that begins to look like spiritual pettiness. So first off, and I, like, this is, this is going to be mind-blowing, because remember, poetry, the five husbands is a metaphor. Uh, there very well could have been five actual husbands, but let's look at it from this lens in the poetic sense. The Samaritans had an interesting approach to their faith. So the Samaritans didn't actually worship the same way that uh, the Jews did, and that's a lot of why the tension was there. They actually only affirmed the first books of the New Testament, the Pentateuch or the Mosaic Law, which, guess what, are five books. Also, they, were, they worshipped other pagan gods. So they didn't just worship Yahweh, but they had five other pagan gods. So they're at a well, a signal that a marriage has happened. Jesus is using this metaphor to say there are five bigger things going on in your life, and the guy that you're living with right now is not your husband. He's saying, I know the religion that you have been wound up in. I know the law that you've been wound up in. I know the, the religious law and that hurt, and I'm calling it out. He found what plagued her the most and said, with this living water, there's no room to hold on to that pain. Living with this man, she would have been the town just like disgrace. Both her position as a woman uh, and as that would have been considered very taboo back then, an unmarried woman living with another man, possibly for the sixth time. Can you imagine the kind of hurt she's carrying around? This is what hurt her, and Jesus understood that. And this is a call to all of us. 
there are things in our lives that we hold on to for no good reason that are causing us pain. If we really ask ourselves this morning, like, what causes you pain? Because part of the Christian life is like saying, this is what's really causing you pain. There's just no room for that. I want you to leave that behind. There's a really interesting image that happens as she leaves that well to go tell people about Jesus. It says she leaves her bucket by the well and goes. Sort of this really awesome picture of leaving behind the heavy, old stuff and coming in light, bubbling forth into new life and going to tell people about this Christ that freed me from this heavy bucket. And I just, I look at my life and I think, what are the things that I'm doing in my life that are causing me pain, but I'm just letting it do that? Right? Like, I'm not stepping forth and just saying, like, you know what, no. And maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a job. I mean, whatever it is, I can think of things in my life that like, are unnecessarily hurting me. I'm completely in control of them. All it takes is one conversation to say, like, no, I'm leaving that in the bucket and I'm going to go over here. Because that's what Jesus is calling us to. He's saying, I see your pain. I see what's hurting you, and I'm j- I just want you to let that go. There's no more room for this. Leave it in the bucket with the stale well water. You've got something new now. You have a new way to live. And as we've talked about in part three of this series, it's all about welcoming every single person, no matter what. We have to leave our bucket behind. We have to recognize that Jesus used the most unlikely person in the world, to share who he was. And in that sense, we are to welcome some of the most unlikely people in the world into this space. Because that's just what the church is called to do. Especially as we move towards Easter. Like, this is supposed to be a space where no matter who you are, no matter what you've been through, you're welcome here. Because we're leaving all that other stuff in the bucket. It's gone. It's the well water. We don't use that anymore. We're moving forth in a life with Jesus. So as you approach the communion table today, I just want you to be thinking about what causes you pain. And I want to invite you to leave that in the bucket as you come up here, just sort of like very practically just go like, that's in the bucket now. I'm going to step forth and I'm stepping out of this and into this miraculous event. I'm going to pray for us and then uh, first row can come down, second row, third row. Uh, But let me pray. Lord, I'm I'm just... uh, so grateful for the stories that you left behind, the stories that you told, but also the stories that you just lived. Uh, it's just like, like that woman at the well story is just like some awesome play. There's theater to it, there's drama to it, and there's grace to it, and there's love to it. And uh, I'm just so grateful for those kind of stories that pull us out uh, of the literal and take us into a much deeper metaphor. And so uh, this morning I just pray over our church, God, I pray that you would reveal what those the stresses are, the things that are causing us pain for just no good reason that we're carrying around like that bucket. And I just pray that you would help us get rid of it. Just say, there's no room for that in the kingdom. There's no room for that when we have you to guide us. Amen. So you guys can start coming up for communion. I can pull these off.